You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to episode three of Commentary, Trek Stars, a podcast where we look at the work of Star Trek creators outside of Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today is part two on our look at the career of Gene Roddenberry as a television creator. And we are going to look at his first television series, The Lieutenant. Yeah. Okay. For those of you who don't know, The Lieutenant is a show which aired in the 1963 and 64 television season. It only lasted for one year. It starred Gary Lockwood, he of Gary Mitchell fame. He's also in some movie called 2001 or something like that. I've never never heard of that movie. And um, the basic premise is that it is about a lieutenant in the Marines during peacetime. Now, mm, kind of like Jag. You know, I just thought of Jag. I was like, because like the whole time I was thinking like, this is such a weird concept, you know? Like I had always, you know, heard of like Gene Roddenberry's first series, the Lieutenant. And I just always assumed it was a cop show because he was a lieutenant, or he was like a, a cop. And I mean, now I'm thinking, has Jag ever been a show during peacetime? <laughs> I think it has. Okay. It, it, that, that was on in the in the late '90s, I believe. All right, that's good. That's but, good. Um, but uh, it was on like the mid '90s, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Um, what do you do? You know, this show, you know, for years and years, I guess, was basically not available. And then just a few months ago, uh, the Warner Archive released it. Now, the, the Warner Archive, it basically, it's a, it's a made-to-order um, DVD store, you know, yeah. where, where they release movies which aren't, or, or television shows which aren't big enough to get, like, a a, a regular release. It's the cafe press of of, of TV show uh, online ordering. Right, right. And they've broken it up into two halves, essentially. So you can order, um, you know, the first half of the show and then the second half, and um, which is great. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, you know, for a show that I had never seen before, I wasn't going to order the thing just to watch for this. So uh, we were forced to basically base our opinions of this show on the one episode, which is actually on YouTube. And it's uh, the episode which um, guest stars, amongst other people, Leonard Nimoy and Major Barrett. Yep. And the, the name of the episode is? In the Highest Tradition. This show, like we were saying, it's about um, a lieutenant in the Marines during peacetime. Do we need to say during peacetime? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's important, you know, because like how many other military shows do you see that are during peacetime? I mean, I guess there's JAG, like we were just talking about. Well, what else is there? Nothing. I mean, anytime you think about it, it's it's about it's it's essentially like a war show. But I mean, that's sort of the the tricky thing about it, because I can't really think of many shows that have you know real world military during well, war i mean all. there there are war shows i mean you know although i mean you could point to the obvious miniseries you know there's band of brothers yeah but yeah. i mean like the more i mean there's mash i remember i remember back in like the late 80s there were like three movies that were essentially like 
what if Platoon was a TV show? Yeah. And and it was uh, and and every one of those shows was oh it would be just as unpleasant to watch as 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 Platoon. <laughs> yeah. For entirely different reasons. But this is not that. You know, this is like a guy, you know, walking around offices dealing with things and and I mean it's hard from this one episode to sort of get a sense of like what a general episode would be like of this show but I mean I think that this is a a pretty um I I see this as being a pretty typical episode the premise of the episode that we watched was basically uh there was a, a Hollywood director played by Leonard Nimoy who um wanted to make a movie about a specific incident which occurred in World War II, a, sp- a specific, you know, uh, battle. And in order to ensure its uh, historical accuracy, the Marines got involved with it. And in particular, it was, you know, Gary Lockwood's character's uh, job to track down the commander of that mission mm-hmm. and make sure that you know he was brought on as an advisor to you know uh, uh yeah they okay they they, sk- they skim right over the, the the whole point of where uh they choose this guy uh because uh, they're they're basing it in this particular battle but um om- almost immediately you realize that they're not really so much basing it on that battle they're just naming it afterwards after that because they know that that's a name so yeah. it, there, there are a lot of things that are sort of glossed over, but the the result is that this particular guy who was who was involved in the war is approached to be a technical consultant on the movie, and he's skeptical to do so. Um, the, the 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 general, yeah, he 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 seems reluctant to get involved for you know the the, the same you know reason why anybody's reluctant to get involved in something. But but I mean the, the what what's what's lurking beneath the surface, which is what what's revealed later on, is that you know there's more to the story than the the public record indicates, and in fact he may not be the hero that everyone uh, thinks he is. To put it in Star Trek terms, he's kind of like Lee Nollis. So so that's basically the premise of the show. You know, there's more to it than that. You know, like Nimoy, you know, is like a basically kind of a Michael Bay type guy who's just like, we can do this with the big explosions and it'll be amazing. And then the you camera know, will spin around him yeah, a few times as he right. stands up slowly in slow motion. <laughs> and And then, you know, Gary Lockwood is like, that's not how it happened. And he's like. Well, that's it's the the spirit and the thing, and uh, you know I'm not telling you how to make movies, and you know you're not telling me how to to direct. You know, kind of like uh, in Boogie Nights, you know, whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. But but so uh, so so that's that's kind of what's going on there, you know. And 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 over the course of this, you know, you you kind of see you know the struggle and 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 whether or not this guy really is a hero and what what it means to be a hero and 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 all this stuff. It, the, the 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 episode follows a very predictable arc of. Um Somebody says they're gonna find out, and then somebody else goes like, uh, "I don't really feel good about this. Something's going on. He's hiding something." And then the reveal is, "Yeah, I've been hiding this thing that I'm lying about. Actually, it's not as simple as that, and it's not really exactly all that bad. It's just kind of unfortunate and, and depressing." So, yeah, yeah, my bad. Mm-hmm. And then they say like, "Well, you know." That's nothing to be ashamed of. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're you really still a hero, and, you know, we're going to make this movie. 
the way that it actually did happen because in reality that is more dramatic than what Michael Bay would think it would be. And and the, to you know just to you know make sure that we hammer this point home, that's the most unrealistic part of the episode. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, like we mentioned, Leonard Nimoy and Major Barrett are in it. Nimoy plays the director. Barrett plays his secretary, essentially. Um, this show is also, I guess, fairly famous for um, an episode which had Nichelle Nichols in it, which dealt with, you know, like racism, which was obviously a very touchy subject in 1964. It was so touchy that, um, from what I, I gather, it, that episode never actually aired. And they... Um, somehow from what i can tell expanded it and released it theatrically like in europe or something but since then the episode has aired and it actually is included on the uh the the set that you can get from from warner brothers so uh you can check that out um there is uh, actually a substantial amount of um star trek uh people who worked behind the scenes on on this show um, Roddenberry wrote almost all of the episodes himself, if, if the IMDb is to be believed. Um, but as far as like the directors of the show were concerned, there were four um, who would go on to uh, direct episodes of Star Trek, and all of them pretty noteworthy. There's Robert Butler, who directed The Cage. Um, and he's still working today. I, it's a uh, yeah. It's it's crazy. He I, I have a friend who uh, went to L.A. for an internship, and they did like a workshop, and he he got to work with Robert Butler for like a, a week, and it's pretty impressive. I mean, I would kill to do that. Um, then uh, Vincent um, McAvity, I think is how you pronounce his name. He he's done a few episodes, including Balance of Terror. David Alexander, he did a couple episodes, including Plato's Stepchildren, so, you know, whatever. And then uh, Mark Daniels uh, was actually the director of the episode that we watched. He was probably the most prolific uh, director of the original series, or at least one of them. He directed um, 15 episodes of the original series, a whole bunch, including, you know, Mirror, Mirror. Yeah. Um, other uh, <laughs> noteworthy directors, Richard Donner directed yes. an episode of the show you know he of course would go on to do superman the movie and timeline he's done some other stuff assassins i like assassins you like assassins yeah yeah it's a good movie that was written it's by not that was written by wachowski starship yeah yeah and um another director on the show andrew v mclaughlin who directed mitchell Ma, 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 Mitchell. Stop. <laughs> uh, fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 know and love his work. <laughs> they do? I do. Well, when they're high. No, no, no. You got to love Mitchell. All right. I prefer Laser Blast. I'll never forget that. <laughs> have you seen that episode? You must yes. have seen that episode. Yeah. And there's the thing I, that I had a television in the 90s. They're singing the song, and then it's like going on forever. <laughs> and then at one point, Crow's like, Mama, Mama, my God. Oh, that's some good stuff. That's the best episode of that show. I know everyone says Manos, the Hands of Fate. No way. Mitchell. Mitchell's the best episode of Mystery Science. I'm not kidding. I think Laser Blast is the best. I'm, I don't. I, I think I did see that one, but I don't know. I, for years, I loved Danger Death Ray. That's a good one. 
I don't know. There's I a lot, and, and also uh, Attack of the Giant Gila Monster. Well, let's just continue talking about MST3K. Okay, I'm sure we'll find some interesting information about Gene Roddenberry <laughs> if we keep going. Okay, eventually we'll get around there. I mean, uh, you know, the idea is we orbit on the periphery. I mean, this is pretty far out there. This, but I mean, you know, why not? Okay. <laughs> Um, also, one one of the other writers on the show was Lee Irwin, who wrote um, Whom Gods Destroy. So, yeah, obviously a lot of Star Trek people. And, and as we'll see, you know, going forward, like, a lot of these people are, are people who worked with Roddenberry again, like, in, in the post-Star Trek uh, world. Uh, I know, like, McAvity did a pilot for him. I think Mark Daniels did a pilot for him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, but it's just kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, there are a lot of aspects of uh, of, of like Gene Roddenberry's history in, in television that that are really interesting. I mean, like I love that era of television. The like the the way that it was it was produced is, I, I mean, I'm I, I really nostalgic about a time that I I did not live through. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a uh, like the idea the there, that there was a show called Playhouse ninety and yeah. that they did what they did on that show. That is insane to me. I, I it seems so incredibly fantastically amazing. I cannot believe that we do not have one of those now. And if you like, you look at the credits on that show. Like if you look at the credits on any of these TV shows, for one thing, like if you start like searching and look at, at any of these directors, you see the same. Uh, like shows pop up again and again and again, yeah. you know, and and the same people working on those shows again and again and again. But then you start looking at like who was directing. I mean, didn't Richard Donner direct? I mean, I know he did some Twilight Zone stuff, but he did some substantial. Did he do Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet? I think he might have. No, that sounds right. I mean, I mean, it's crazy. And and there were some other Twilight Zone directors, or one other Twilight Zone director at least, uh, who worked on on this show and i mean but like also like filmmakers like robert altman was doing stuff john frankenheimer i mean john frankenheimer and william friedkin i think but certainly john frankenheimer got his start in live tv yeah and, and the really unfortunate thing is that uh the technology at the time being what it was there essentially weren't video recorders yeah. So, you know, the way that these things were recorded was to basically film them. You know, it was called like a kinescope. You know, you, you would film them yeah. off of a TV, essentially. So, you know, the few shows which actually do exist, the quality of them is, is horrendously bad. It's almost unwatchable. And, you know, there isn't like a lot of that stuff which which even exists anymore. And, you know, the, the, that's also sort of like the problem that we're running into here with, you know, looking at Gene Roddenberry's work is that, you know, uh, television at the time was considered to be such a disposable medium that, you know, a lot of stuff aired once and that was it. You mm -hmm. never saw it again, you know, and all this this really, really awesome work that, you know, all these artists, you know, put their 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 life into for at least a day, you know, is just gone and you know it shows like the lieutenant you know it's hard to find them there are times where where i i think about you know that the history of television and, and you you hear about like how these shows were originally broadcast and it's amazing what we do have today in a sense you know like i just finished watching the entire original series on blu-ray with my wife and it looks 
absolutely amazing, and it's got the original mono tracks on there, which sound great and everything like that, and yet you go on the internet and you see all these people complaining about how terrible the transfers are and how there's a whole bunch of macro blocking and stuff like that, and it's like, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, when these things originally aired, from what I understand, the way that they were broadcast varied depending on your local station and essentially what happened was you know the 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 tv channels the local channels were given like 35 millimeter prints and then they ran them in front of a video camera yeah and what you got was what you got and if you lived in las cruces it probably didn't look as good as if you lived in uh, Chicago. It's 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 an absolutely ridiculously amazing situation where people can actually complain about the the, the transfer of a of a show like like Star Trek. Considering that you know if you've if you've ever seen a TV from that era, <laughs> if you've ever seen anything on a TV from that era, you're gonna say I couldn't tell you what I was looking at conclusively. Right. It's essentially like, you know, if you if you need to wear glasses, take those glasses off and look at the screen and then punch out one of your eyes. Then you're getting close to the level of quality those old TVs could produce. And the idea that people can go online and complain about like something like edge enhancement or compression artifacting and, and say like, like, hey, with all this crap on the screen, I can barely see the dude's fingerprint on the matte painting. It's ridiculous. That's why I got this. I wanted to see that dude's fingerprint. Yeah. It's just nuts. It's the way of the world today. It's a good place to be, I suppose. So anyway, back to the lieutenant. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the show? Um, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. It's interesting. It's an interesting concept for a show, and it's a... It's it's actually really well made. It's um it, it's very obvious why you know people were willing to give Roddenberry, you know, like the license to make a science fiction show at all. Yeah, or even give him a second chance at it. Yeah, I mean it's it it shows that you know Roddenberry was not like you know a one note like psycho who you know one day was like I know I'll do a thing like with boats but in the space. <laughs> like that's like, like that's not how it happened. It was like it was like he knew what you know good tv was and he was like i think i could get away with a lot if i had spaceships in my show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If i had some spaceships in there then i could straight up just have a dude say hating people because of their race is bogus yeah and they'd let me do it <laughs> yeah it, it really is kind of cool it, it, you know and then, like, he, then he like then he you know put his fingers <laughs> together and said excellent yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, watching this show, like, I I did enjoy it. I'm not sure that I would watch the entire series or anything like that. Not that it was bad, but, you know, there's a lot of other stuff which I find to be more compelling. But I think it really is interesting to look at on a historical level as sort of, like, proto-Roddenberry, you know? You can see, like, a lot of the pieces which would become Star Trek kind of coming into place, both, you know, thematically and also, you know, as far as just, like, you know, personnel-wise, I mean. And I, also, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw one little thing here. If if you if if there is somebody out there who still actually believes that the that Starfleet is not supposed to be military, just ask yourself if if the character in Lieutenant was was wearing a yellow shirt, would he not be Captain Kirk? It's basically the same thing. 
I, I can kind of see that. Yeah. I mean, he's... he's he might like, actually be wearing a yellow shirt. Well, he's young Captain... He might be wearing a yellow shirt. It's just black and white, so you yeah. can't tell. Yeah, well, it, it would be like a young Captain Kirk, in a sense. Yeah. He's got that idealism and everything like that, but he doesn't have the, the rank, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, so, so like in addition to those, you know, sort of thematic elements, you know, you, you, you also, you know, can see, like we were talking about, like the personnel, and, you know, he's like gathering the pieces which he's going to need in order to make Star Trek... You know, you can you can kind of see, you know, this this idea of like, you know, like, well, that Nimoy guy who I had in that one episode of that show, he really impressed me. Let me bring him in here. You know, Gary, you know, Lockwood may not be right for the role of Captain Kirk, but I am going to use him in, you know, my pilot because I think that he can, you know, really do like a a, a slam bang job on this Gary Mitchell dude. You know, I, I mean, uh, like, I, I like that. I like seeing, you know, how these, these sort of bonds are formed. And, you know, it, it does influence, you know, work for, for years to come. I mean, these directors who Roddenberry had, while Roddenberry isn't a director himself, he has a stable of directors who he knows are going to um, portray his writing in, in a certain manner and he's going to use them again and again and again because he knows what he's going to get from them. He knows that he's going to get work that he likes. He's not leaving it up to, to chance with, with some sort of random dude with a camera. Mm-hmm. He's, he's not going to get a Leonard Nimoy, you know, it, it, it is in this movie, you know, directing his, his thing. He knows that he's going to get someone who he can, who he can trust. Yeah. So for, for th- those reasons, I, I, I think that it's it's really interesting. Not so much as like a standalone, although I did think that this particular episode was good. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing, which which is very very Roddenberry about it, which we've touched on briefly, is you know the idea of a military show in peacetime. You know, I can see because that as being like a total Star Roddenberry. Trek. That's a <laughs> Yeah, that's a Roddenberry. Everybody who doesn't think that's true, I'm sorry. And that that's a thing which you know. I know that Roddenberry has made a point of saying that Starfleet isn't military. I almost think that it's making a stronger point in a show like this, or let's say a show like Star Trek, to say they are military, but they're not fighting because they don't need to because there's no war. It's 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 a very strange thing that happens there. I don't quite know what the what the situation is because, like, if you. If you embrace the idea of like a humanity that has put aside war as a tool, then then immediately the military seems kind of awesome. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just want to go be all I can be, but not, you know, kill anyone or, you know, be ordered to die for no reason. Like, I'm going to join the military because I want to help people and... And I'm not going to have to shoot anybody. There's no downside to this. Yeah. I mean, like a military, you know, like in, in a society that doesn't have war amongst each other. That's, that's an amazing thing. I don't see why, I don't see why there would be any problem with saying that Starfleet is a military, especially considering, you know, the, the, the big giant statement that, you know, it's tons and tons and tons and tons of people not killing each other. That's a fantastic place to be in the military. Yeah. You get to do a really good job and, you know, like, you know, help everybody else do better jobs. You get to, you know, learn skills that you wouldn't learn otherwise and, you know, do what you can for other people. It's all positive stuff. 
mm-hmm. saying that it's not military doesn't make sense. It's really strange. It's almost like he he was trying to make two completely separate, like the same point, two completely different ways. And when you use both ways, it ends up making you look nuts because they're mutually exclusive ways. Mm-hmm. You know, no, they're not the military or they're the military when you don't have war. If we don't have war and they're not the military, then what are they? Yeah. Are, are, are they public transportation? Is well, it think, like a bus? I think the idea is they're supposed to be like a Peace Corps. Yeah, it, but that's not. It, it's that's not what they are. Yeah. I mean, like you know, that would that would be a, that's a different show. <clears throat> that would be like, oh, we're gonna go down to that planet and help out for a while, and that's what we're gonna do for season one, and then in season two we're gonna be on a different planet. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that sort of killed this show, which only lasted one year, was the fact that in reality, war did break out. And it would no longer be a show about the military during peacetime. It would be a show about the military during wartime, which is something which Roddenberry seemed ready to deal with. From what I understand, in the last few episodes of the series, uh, Gary Lockwood's character actually was um, deployed to a fictional Asian country to essentially fight in, you know, their version of Vietnam. And... um, Despite the fact that the show was a success, um, by the time the 1964 season rolled around, you know, Vietnam was so much a part of the public consciousness that basically people didn't want to deal with it in their entertainment. And so the show was canceled. But I think that if the show hadn't been canceled, Roddenberry would have made a really interesting show about the war right because uh, which then would have been immediately canceled well i mean if you've seen i mean like if you, if you watch you know the, the the bits of lieutenant that we have available to us i mean you can pretty clearly see like what kind of what kind of show that would theoretically be because it's not going to be him you know leading a platoon of dudes to fight you know uh, a particular you know enemy at a, at a location i mean it would still be you know sort of base bound yeah it would still be sort of you know people who are all on the same side dealing with the, you know the issues now at war it's not not really all that far away from mash yeah i was just kind of thinking the same thing so like the idea that you know like that would be you know, like a like a season of that sh- that makes a kind of sense. I don't know but why that you, wouldn't happen. But can you imagine Mash being on while the war was going on? I mean, the 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 studio freaked out when when Robert Altman was like, you know, oh well, Mash is going to take place during Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, the studio is the one who made him put the little thing at the front saying this is the Korean War. You know, I mean, even though he very very blatantly was not making it about the Korean War. It's yeah, that does it, I understand the 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 issue that you know they might not have allowed it to happen, but I mean that's uh, conceptually I understand that I, I know that that's a thing that happens. I know that's a thing that has happened many times throughout throughout the history of art. Uh, in in for for this particular example, I don't understand why it would because it doesn't seem reasonable. But I know that you know it's true. That is how it goes. I mean, but I don't know what, what those people are reacting to because I do not understand the problem with that kind of that kind of show, especially you know when I mean like you know 
what's the concern here? I mean, is the concern that we're going to alienate people because they don't want to know about the war? Because, I mean, like, it's not like we're going to be showing the actual war here. I think it's very weird. Well, I don't know. My thinking is that, you know, war being what it is, people turn to uh, television, whether it's comedy or drama, as a form of escapism more than anything else. I mean, that is why, I mean, you know, I know that, you know, the the great shows have loftier goals, but that's really why people generally tend to watch television, the average person. So people who are trying to escape from, you know, I mean, like, I mean, especially Vietnam with the draft and everything like that, people who are dealing on a daily basis with the fact that loved ones are oftentimes unwillingly going over to this 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 you know foreign country yeah. to die for something that they don't even believe in they're not going to want to turn on their tv and see a show about the military they're just not you know it's yeah. different now and i mean you do see you know shows now which deal with with you know that stuff on on a regular basis and it's different because it's not the same scenario you know, even though it is in a lot of ways, like Vietnam now, you don't have the draft, which is a big, a big, big, big factor in, you know, people's daily lives. Yeah, yeah. There there are there are a lot of strange things about, you know, societies at war and how they treat the war in their, their, their art. Um, you know, the... It's I I still don't understand you know the human psychology of war in general, mm-hmm. you know to me to me like the idea of the idea of like a, a show about you know you know people who are involved in a war that is actually occurring to me it just seems like um, synergy, mm-hmm. you know it to me it seems like a marketing angle you know it doesn't even seem like it it doesn't even seem like a, a lofty goal it just seems like well I mean you know. They're, the war is getting a lot of press. We'll probably get some if we set our series there. It just seems kind of like like a natural sort of tie-in. It's like like obviously, yes, you know, there's there's a movie coming out. Let's uh, let's reference the movie, and that way we can get some attention. Yeah, I think it's different when when you're hitting so close to home with something like this. <clears throat> I, perhaps, but I. I, uh, the, the, that's the sort of strange thing because people do that all the time. It's just apparently not with that one subject. I'm not exactly sure why that one subject is so strange. Probably because there's a political angle to it, and um, yeah. and you essentially get you know crap from everybody on both sides. I mean, like essentially, if you're if you're setting your show, you know, in 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 an actual environment that that is war the war zone. I mean, then like you've got you've got pressure from like you know one one side of the political spectrum saying like. You got to make sure that you show the military positively, and the other side saying like you got to make sure that you show the enemy is also made of human beings. Mm-hmm. And then you know when they hear that the other person told you things to do, they get angry at each other and they direct all that anger at you. And then they're just like, let's just cancel the show. That's just the easier way to do things. Yeah. And uh, that that seems to be the way it goes. But I mean that that particular process seems very counterintuitive to me because it just seems like like hey, I mean you might agree or disagree, but I mean. This show's going to make some money. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have any uh, final thoughts on um, The Lieutenant? No, that's about it. Okay. Well, uh, that, that wraps up uh, this episode for today. We will be back next time with um, a look at Assignment Earth. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll have uh, uh, our first guest on. Uh, I've got some ideas for that. 
But speaking of which, you know, we, we do want to try to have... ISIS. Uh, ISIS? We'll have ISIS here? Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. We, we do want to try to have, you know, like people come on, you know, who might be uh, either experts or, or fans or, or familiar, you know, in some way or another, have something to say about, you know, these things which we're talking about, which we, you know, may not have even seen, you know, yet, at least. Um, so just in terms of like things which are coming up, we've got Genesis 2, the Questor tapes, Earth, the Final Conflict, and Andromeda. If anyone is a fan of those or has, you know, something that you, you, you want to, uh, say about those and want to, you know, join us for, for any of those episodes, uh, shoot us an email and, uh, we'll, we'll see if we can work something out. Uh, you can find us, like we said before, at CommentaryTrackStars.com. You can follow us on Twitter at ComTrackStars. You can email us, um, ComTrackStars at gmail.com. Um, but I guess that's it. Do you have any other, uh, anything else? No? Which one had Kevin Sorbo? That was Andromeda. Captain Hercules, as they call it. Yeah. I saw the first episode of that show. Okay, I, I haven't, but I'm going to watch it. Until then, um, second start of the right, and uh, take your time. <laughs>